0: He's, he's the shepherd of your souls, and he can trust that to me this morning. So I'm, uh, I'm appreciative of that, and it's not lost on me, the, the importance of this morning. So Bobby did ask me to, to talk about unity, and ultimately I am going to talk about unity, but not in the way in which you think. Unity is not about all of us just basically agreeing on the same basic concepts And therefore we lock arms, good versus evil, light versus darkness, that kind of thing. Any unity that is not built upon and based upon the life of Christ being expressed in and through his people is only superficial. It will fail and it will never last. That is the basis of my message this morning. I'm going to preach on what's called uh, the doctrine of union with Christ. Some of you guys in here have maybe heard this sometimes when I was at our last church I would often ask for a show of hands who's heard of this I'm not going to do that this morning because if there's not a lot of hands I don't want it to be an embarrassment because this is something that is the true essence of Christianity is this doctrine of unity with Christ if if we miss this we miss Christ if we miss what it means to be in union with the Son of God then we completely have missed everything else and that means that we've spent our entire lives No matter how much work we've done, no matter how much we've we've just strived to do good, all the good work we've done, all the ministry, there's so much ministry going on right now without union with Christ being present, and it will ultimately fail. The work will be burned up. So what I want you to understand is, yes, I used a scary word, didn't I? Doctrine. Doctrine is a word that is used all over the new testament though and don't check out because this morning It is not an intellectual exercise. I promise you It's going to be an exercise of faith this morning We're gonna have to wrestle and, and grasp these concepts because these concepts are the very reason that christ came to his people You know, I don't get nervous to preach anymore in front of a crowd or anything, but Whenever I I had settled upon the text, when I had settled upon what I knew God wanted me to preach, I am rather nervous because this is such a a special topic. This is the the topic that Jesus spent his longest discourse on in in John 14 through 17 that he gave all of his, his effort to in his last sermon. In John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer ends with three words, I in them. And that's what I'm gonna to, to expound for you this morning <clears throat> is simply what does Jesus mean by I and them and them and me? That that we would enjoy the fellowship, the unity that Jesus has with the Godhead. You're gonna have to really think with me this morning. This topic, so I have a good friend who's actually preaching something very similar this morning in Muskogee. And if you didn't know this, by the way, you're being prayed for for this morning. That whole fellowship is praying for you that He would open up our understanding, that He would give us ears to hear, that the Son of God Himself would make Himself present and known to you. My friend that is preaching on this preached 24 sermons on this topic. That's 24 weeks of sermons. I'm going to give you a 30,000 foot overview of this in about 30 minutes. So I don't have time to, to dive into all of the details, all of the aspects. But I do believe that if we could just grasp just an an inkling of this concept, that we would begin to, our our Christian life would explode. That vitality would explode within you. So here's my my verse for you this morning. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me. That is our banner verse this morning. And I must warn you, this is an exegetical sermon, but we are going to be all over the place because this is all over the New Testament. Here's what we've got to do, though, folks. There is no doctrine that that Satan hates more than this one. He hates many things about you and me. He hates God. He hates the Son. He hates the Spirit. But this doctrine alone he knows and understands that if we show up here every morning and he's not with us, then it doesn't matter. He's content for us to come to church as long as, as long as Christ is not here present with us. He will do anything he can to separate you from Christ. That's the unity that needs to happen this morning. We need to, to understand by faith, not intellectually, by faith, this unity that we have that you and I enjoy with Christ. So will you join me in prayer? Father, we ask this morning, Lord, God, that you would rend the heavens and come down, Lord, and open up our understanding. Lord, these things are not for the intellectuals, Lord. These are not for the universities and the seminaries, Lord. But you promise that you would draw near, that you are meek and lowly of heart. That this is the the reason you came, Father, for the lowly the non-intellectuals, Lord, for the common people. Lord, would you take something so high and beautiful, Lord, and make it available to us? Would you give us understanding and ears to hear? Lord, would you grant us faith? Lord, it's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen. Theologians have something that's called the ordo salutis, which just simply means the order of salvation, the way in which salvation comes. Or if you've said in my class, you know I talk about soteriology. That just simply means the study of salvation. It's something that pastors must know because we are to be soul physicians. How can we help somebody if we don't understand what it means to be saved? So when we study this this doctrine, this, this ordo salutis, the order of salvation, it's important. And with that comes justification, sanctification, adoption, redemption, the transferal out of the kingdom of darkness and into the light, all of the blessings of salvation that flow out of union with Christ, all of those wonderful things that you and I enjoy, find their root and their fountain in this doctrine, which is union with Christ. This is essentially the the foundation which upholds the whole building of salvation. Every blessing that you and I enjoy, everything that we, we sing about, we talk about, we pray about, they all mean nothing if we are not united to Christ They find their root and cause in this Now you see why I say This is so important You see we've got a Whole slew of Christians right now That all they know is we must get saved And we must get people saved But they know nothing of What it means to Christ For Christ to live in and through them All they know is we get saved Now we go to heaven when we die Now we've got to get other people saved So that they can go to heaven when they die and then we say that's the end all. There you go. Be a good person and go your way. <laughs> it's well-meaning, I understand, but it's not Christianity. Christianity at its core, what do we what do we talk about at Christmas time? Emmanuel, what does that mean? God with us. Not God beside us, not God just in this ephemeral realm, just some benevolent force for good, but God literally with us. So what I'm actually wanting to put forth for you this morning is use all the faculties of your mind, yes, but also use that that last sense of faith and appropriate this to yourself and your life will explode. Have you ever been around somebody that when they pray, you kind of feel like, I don't want to follow that prayer? (laughs) I I don't want to follow that one. Have you ever read anything of the pious Puritans and the way they talked about God in a way that is often foreign to you and I? to myself. What is the difference? They understood this by faith. This is what this means. Martin Luther, who, I can't ask this question because this isn't okay. This is okay if you don't know the the German reformer. Who in here has ever heard of Martin Luther? I love participation in church. Martin Luther, the German reformer, caused the breakaway from the roman catholic church he did not cause it but he was a big part in the church at his day and he he said that the the rise and fall of the church hinges upon one doctrine and that's the doctrine of justification by faith because the church had misinterpreted the means of salvation by works by vehicles of grace by the ordinances like we just took I would dare say before you today that we are fighting a different battle in the church today. We are fighting the battle of union with Christ. We've actually got to go back a step from what Martin Luther fought in his day. We've got to get people to understand this union with Christ. How near and dear he wants to be with his people. So if you would, turn with me to our our banner verse this morning. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. Let me ask you this. If you and I became pen pals, and I wrote you a letter, say, every week, and every week you began to notice that I wrote to you the same thing every week, what would you begin to expect? Wow, he really wants me to understand this, doesn't he? This is all this guy talks about. He's, a, he's got a one-beat drum, one note. That's all he strikes. Guess what Paul talked about in all of his letters he actually talks about it so much nearly 200 times that you could say it's on every page in the new testament so if he writes about something so often do you not think that he wants us to understand what this means and his doctrine is christ in us christ with us and us in christ he says it in number ways in christo but it all means the same thing christ in his people To me, his banner verse is found in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. For I have been crucified with Christ. He considered himself so one with Christ that he could say, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave him for me. He didn't say, I live intellectually, that I know that Jesus died for me. He said, I live by faith. This morning, I understand. I am a... So I'm an associate evangelist for RTM with my friend and mentor, Michael Durham. And our job is not to go to conferences and Reformed conferences and preach these concepts to intellectuals so that they can we can clap ourselves on the back and all agree that we agree Jesus died for us. Our ministry is based solely on taking these doctrines and making them available for everybody. So do not be embarrassed if you've never even heard of the doctrine of union with Christ. All I ask is that you give it your full undivided attention today. Here's where I divide up the when I talk about stuff like this maybe you find yourselves in one of these camps there are some in here that this will resonate with why because you are a child of god and you know these things to be true although you never had words for them you will go ah man that's like scratching the itch that i couldn't there's going to be some in here who you've lived your Christian life trying to attain holiness of life. You know something of the consecration to which Jesus calls you to, but it seems something so unattainable that you could never do, and you you fail miserably. You give up on it. There's some in here who are going to say this is for the intellectuals. (laughs) This is for the others, the hardcore, those that consider this to be next-level Christianity. This is Christianity in a nutshell. For those of you who think what I'm about to preach to you is too hard for you to understand, you don't understand Christ. When he said, I am meek and lowly, I am gentle in heart, you know what he's saying? I am for the low. I am for the peasant. I am for the slaves. That letter in Galatia, the letter to Romans that we consider such a wonderful theological treatise was written to slaves and common people. This is for you and I. And if you are in here and you are unconverted, and I'm not fooled, I know that we're going to have unconverted, unregenerate people among us when a crowd this big, you're probably going to wrestle with this. And Satan is going to try to tell you and get you to look at, don't fall for what that preacher says, brother or sister. You've said a prayer, you've asked Jesus to come into your heart, you've walked an aisle, you've been baptized. And he's going to do everything he can because he hates you to keep you from Christ. Don't let it happen this morning. We're all a blank slate. We're all going to start from the same place. So regardless of where you find yourself on that spectrum today, ultimately, there's only two places that you can be this morning. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. All of humanity right now is in one of two places. All of the gospel, all of of humanity bound up in one verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. You'll notice I did not give our brothers at the sound booth any slides because I love to hear pages turning or your little faces light up with the light of your phone, whatever it may be. I prefer the Bible, the paper Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but I want you to read these for yourself. I also, one, one last caveat. If you are a note-taker in here, go easy on the notes today. I'll try to record this and um, transfer the audio to our website. Just listen this morning. Listen for Christ to speak to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Here it is. The sum of the gospel bound up in one verse. All of humanity is in one of two places. They are either in Adam they are in christ for us to properly understand this we've got to do what we normally do and we've got to go back to the old testament we've got to consider what happened in the garden in genesis 1:27, when god creates man and he takes and it says he he makes a clay statue out of the dirt and that's all it is at this point it's just a clay statue Until God comes along, it says, and breathes the breath of life into him, and man became a living soul. Your Bible may say being, but that word simply means soul. Now we've got to understand for a minute what Adam's life would have been like. Adam, did you know this, was our first prophet, priest, and king. He represented all of humankind to God. Adam's life was to be one of an extension of the life of God here on earth. He was given the job to to command, to cultivate, to be fruitful, to multiply. And it, it was all to be done in harmony and in union with the Godhead. Because the very breath of God was in him and energizing him. He was one with the Holy Spirit. And his life flowed out of that. Then you and I know what happens Adam is cut off, he is severed. Adam falls into sin. And that life that he enjoyed is now cut off. And now he can no longer do the job in the way that it was intended because he is no longer an extension of the life of God within him. God tells him, now you will die. And we know he doesn't physically die. He meant spiritual death. That you will spiritually die, Adam. And that means you are no longer going to be able to fulfill the mandate in which I have given you in the way that I have told you to do it. And ever since that happened, though that has an implication for you and I we are not guilty of Adam's sin I did not eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden but I did inherit that same sin nature that Adam inherited all of mankind since then everybody born of Adam has inherited that sin nature simply what that means is it is as if we ate of the tree because you and i participate in sin now in the same way in which adam and eve did i feel like when i go places i spend most of my time trying to teach people what sin is sin is not things you do get that out of your head you are not a good person that has a little sin trouble now and again you are a sinner i always say you are not sinful or you you are not sinful because you sin, you sin because you are sinners. It is in your very nature to sin that you can do nothing other than sin because the very nature that Adam had when he fell has happened to you. You have been severed. You have been born severed from the life of God. We have identified with Adam in his sin. That doesn't seem fair, does it? But look at the Old Testament and you see it all over. Think of the the high priest Going into the tabernacle. You, what was written, written on the high priest's heart whenever he entered into the Holy of Holies? He carried with him the 12 tribes inscribed upon his chest right above his breast, above his heart. Why was that? Because he represented the nations. He represented all the 12 tribes. So when he went in there and offered an offering for sin, it was as if those 12 tribes did it themselves. It was a representation of what took place. Think about David's victory over Goliath that we all love to sing about. That was a victory, not just of David over the Goliath, but when he severed the head of Goliath, it was was Israel making victory over Palestine. It was the God of David having victory over the gods of all of the other gods. You see, there's a real participation in Israel and the people of Israel in what David did. And whenever David sinned in the consensus that that he took... It was the judgment of God it didn't just fall on David. It fell on all of the people. Why? Because David represented those people. You see, our Western minds were so individualistic. We have trouble with that, I know. But that is the way it worked in the Old Testament. So, there's good news. However, I promise I will get there. Scroll down with me on 1 Corinthians 15, down to verse 45. first corinthians 15:45. thus it is written the first, at, first man adam became a living being the last adam became a life-giving spirit you see in genesis 1:27, it says so god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him that is what's called what is known as the imago day being born into the image of god as someone born into the image of god we have an inherent value and dignity But there's somebody who came who is the very imager who is the image of god that paul identifies as The last adam and this one isn't just a man. He calls him. What does he say? He is in in the end of verse 45 a life giving spirit life giving He's so much the image of god that when he was talking to his disciples, you remember what he tells philip He looks at philip And Philip, remember, says, Lord, if you would just show us the Father, it would be enough for us. What does he tell Philip? Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, how could Jesus say such a thing? Because he is the very image of the Godhead. This union that is so mystical to us that I would never attempt to explain to you. That he's fully man and fully God, but he is the very image of God here on earth. He became. The Spirit took on flesh. That's why he can be called a life-giving spirit. So, the moment somebody believes in Christ, the moment someone puts their faith and trust in him, they are taken out of that first Adam, and they are literally placed into Christ. That's where you're getting Paul's language. That's why I'm taking the time to go over this. When Paul says that you are in Christ, this is what he means. You are no longer in Adam you have now been transferred, literally transplanted, transported into Christ, into the kingdom of God. That's what Paul means. Guys, this is wonderful. Paul, this blew, this blew Paul's mind when he began to understand this, that he wrote about it every day. You know how many letters we probably don't have of Paul that he wrote to people, or just small things that he said to people every time he would meet someone on the street? all the times paul talked about the joy and the privilege of being in christ and now go back to how i started this how many of us in here this morning can say well i've never heard that there's such a doctrine of union with christ church what has happened to us satan has done his work hasn't he? he's done it well there's so many christians today that would confess i've never heard such a thing well it's Jesus' longest discourse from john 14 to john 17 why haven't we Well, because he wants to blind our eyes to this. Because he understands that if we grasp this concept that you are in Christ, your life will change. You have now been given a new identity if you are, therefore, in Christ. Paul could go so far to say it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Why? Because that's his new identity. You see, our problem is is we live simply by the physical. Our eyes are enamored by everything that we see around us, things that we can touch and and are tangible. We're addicted to the physical. This requires something we can't see because this union that I'm talking about, it's spiritual. And when I get into the realm of spiritual, then people have trouble believing that it's even real. But friends, Jesus wants to be more real to you than the person sitting next to you. Did you know that the spiritual was actually first before the physical? Have you ever considered that fact? Have you ever thought about the the spiritual realm as more real than the physical realm? Which came first? Let us make man in our image? The spiritual realm came first, and out of that was born the physical. It is more real than the things that you see. Now we're talking about faith, aren't we? Now we're not talking about believing really hard. We're talking about a new sense, a new organ that God gives to His people the moment they place their faith in Christ He he has awakened them and he's given them a new organ in which they understand they live by a new principle, and it's faith. Paul says we no longer walk by sight, but we walk by faith. So many of us in here today, let me ask you a, a probing question this morning. I'm a pastor, I have to. How real is Jesus to you this morning? Don't answer it out loud, answer it internally. Just how real is he to you? fear he's not as real as he wants to be for most of us i know that's the truth i know it's true of myself i remember wasn't a few months ago i called my my friend paul and said meet me at the graveyard we're going to go for a walk (laughs) and i just had to confess to him paul i've been doing and striving but i don't know how real jesus is to me right now And he's opened my eyes. He wants to be be so close to me that when I preach, it is as if he preaches. It is as if whenever we gather together, we are literally saying, let's go see Jesus together. It is as if when I pray for someone, it is Christ praying for someone. That sounds absurd, doesn't it? We're not used to this type of language. I promise I'm not crazy. I promise this is New Testament Christianity. That's how real Jesus wants to be to us. He wants to put this principle in our life. Now do you see why I'm not being too bold when I make the claim that union with Christ is the fountainhead of all spiritual blessings that you and I have in Christ Jesus. Justification is wonderful. Sanctification, growing in Christlikeness, being redeemed from our sin, being liberated, wonderful, wonderful blessings. But it's nothing compared to union with Christ, out of which flow all of the blessings that we have. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. everybody with me so far? Sometimes I feel like I just go to preaching and I'm either over everyone's head or everyone just thinks I'm crazy. I don't ever know. Every now and again, a good amen or something wouldn't, wouldn't be bad. So I know you're listening. In Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, Paul understands this concept very well and says, But whatever gain I had, I count it as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them in rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Christ. You see, Paul says, I'm willing to give up everything for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. That I may be found where? In Him. No longer in Adam, now in Christ. You see, here's what happens. And, and if you're from Calvary, you understand this because I've told you this so many times. If you, if you ever go to a place and you preach and you hear a pastor doing nothing but telling you things to do, I always tell them, it's a doo do sermon. We are not just simply to do the Christian life. Nobody can live the Christian life. Nobody has ever, with the exception of Jesus Christ himself, lived the Christian life. You see, there's there's something called an indicative, something that is indicative of you. It just simply means something that is true of you. And then there is what's called an imperative, which is a command, something you're commanded to do. If I come up here as a preacher and I shame you for the work you're not doing and make you feel so small for your prayer life and everything you don't do and then say, now go and do it, I did nothing but give you imperatives, commands. But if I spend all my time, it's a waste if I don't tell you all the wonderful indicatives, who you are in Christ Jesus. And that's where the church is at today. Be, do, be united. All the things that we talk about without talking about. Now you understand my statement that if we are united in anything other than the life of Christ flowing in and through His people as an expression of the life of Christ in us, it's superficial and it will not last. Why? It left out the most important thing, the indicative, who you are in Christ. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to show you i didn't come up with this paul did let me give you a simple illustration before before we begin reading our verses i want you to imagine that you could somehow your hands were fast enough you could go to the stream and you could pluck a fish out of the water and you're holding that little fish in your hand and you tell it fish i want you to fly and you throw it what's it going to do going to go right back in the water and it's going to swim away why because that's what it is it's a fish but if your little hands could grasp a a beautiful red bird out of the sky and hold it in your hand and say little red bird i want you to fly and you throw it what's it going to do it's going to fly because that's what it was designed to do so many times in church we go and we grab a sinner that doesn't know christ and we say go and fly and we throw them and what do they do they fall flat on their face Because we've not explained to them who they are in Christ. And they have yet to grasp who they are in Christ. And all their working and all of their striving leaves them tired. Leaves them upset. Leaves them feeling poor and distraught. Do you see how important this is, folks? This is the core of Christianity. Is there one in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 now? Look with me at verse 15. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of christ what's that that's an indicative that's representative of who they are shall i then take the members of christ and make them members of a prostitute never there's the imperative you are not to do this or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her for as it is written the two will become one flesh think about this for a minute paul says you are so one with the body That if you go and lay with a harlot, a prostitute, it is as as if Christ did. He's not saying you can cause the sinless son of man to sin. But he's saying your union with Christ is so unique, so so one with Christ, that if you go and you lay with a harlot, it is as if Christ did it himself. He says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Indicative. Therefore, flee from sexual immorality. Imperative. What keeps coming first? Who they are in Christ, now behave accordingly. He says in verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Indicative. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Imperative. Command. Every time, over and over, this is who you are. (laughs) Now act like it never just go and simply do we forget don't we even paul had to write over and over do you not know do you not know he said it earlier in first corinthians chapter six do you not know turn with me to john chapter 15 we'll be there a while We were going over this verse at a Bible study this weekend. Some of us that are in here, Brother Randall spent all day Saturday studying John chapter 15 with a dear friend of mine. And a brother of mine said, this verse doesn't make sense from where it's at. It did because I happened to be studying indicatives and imperatives. John chapter 15, the parable of the branches and the vine. John says in, in verse 3, Jesus says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. What is that? That is an indicative. That is describing who they are and how they are. What he's telling them is you're not going to have to go and and spend your time trying to figure out how to be clean. He says already you are clean. He had already had John chapter 13. He had already been in the upper room and disrobed himself and washed them. He says you are already clean. And then look at what he says in verse 4. Here is the command. Abide in me, and I in you. For as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now you understand where I get the basis of nobody has ever lived the Christian life. You dear friends, brothers and sisters, cannot live this life. And if you do, you're going to fail miserably time and again. And he he will let a believer struggle with this and try and do and do until they finally come to the realization that I can't do this anymore. And now what do they do? They turn to him in desperation. The fountain of life. They finally in their desperation come to him. And what I'm doing this morning is trying to save you from that and go to him in desperation beforehand because you can't do anything without him. Let me ask you this. Is anyone in here greater in Paul in faith or in knowledge of, of who God is? If you are, raise your hand. and I, I'd love to meet you. I'd love to shake your hand. If Paul can't do it, how can we? Look at, look at what, let me read to you what he said. Stay where you're at, but let me read to you what he said in Galatians 2.20. And the life I now live in the flesh, he lives by what? faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me if you're not greater than paul then i think that you and i are going to have to live by the same principle and that's faith in the son of god that he will work in and through us your sanctification is not about you white knuckling it it's about christ expressing his life through us the unity that you and i are to have amongst one another we don't need more fellowship meals although they're wonderful we should be gathering we don't need anything else other than union with christ most pastors bobby probably can attest to this most pastors feel like they spend most of their time trying to get people to do things they just simply don't want to do that's not the pastor's job The pastor's job is just to simply expound to them who they are in Christ. And this life will happen organically among us. Why? Because life begets life. We want to be with one another. We want to be and sing about Christ together. We want to join in prayer meeting together. We want to hear the preaching of the word together. Because we want to grow in Christ. Because a new principle of life has now been given to us in the Son. And it is the very life, the very essence of the Son, living and expressing through his people. Paul understood something. He didn't tell everybody to slap on their WWJD bracelets and imitate Christ. Just ask what would Jesus do and then do it. That sounds easy, right? That is so fleshly. I'm sorry if you wear one. But that is not the Christian life. It is not one of imitation. It is one of impartation. He wants to impart his life and put a new principle in you. So much so that Paul would dare say, I am so one with Christ, it is as if I have been crucified with him. If you told a fellow Christian that today, they would probably look at you like you are crazy. (laughs) If Ben came to me and said, Nate, I'm so one with Christ, man, it's like I'm seated with him in glory. I should, you know what my response would be? Amen. You are. Because you have participated in the life of Christ. You are so one with Christ. Let me read you a few of Paul's phrases. Don't try to keep up with me turning there. I read to you the first one, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. He says in Romans 6.4, Therefore we are buried with him in Christ. He says in Ephesians 2.5, He has made us alive together with Christ, resurrected us with Christ. He has raised us up. Colossians three one. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5. Romans 8 verse 17 We are glorified in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2 To those that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 18 Those that have been reconciled in Christ Jesus. We spend so much of our time trying to get sanctified, grow in holiness, trying to be somebody that we don't understand who we are in Christ, that we so participate in the life of Christ that you and I have been buried with him. We were crucified with him. We have been raised with him. We are seated with him right now at the right hand of glory in Christ. Isn't that a much more wonderful way to live than what we try to do when we try to live the Christian life? Now you understand the purpose of preaching union with Christ to get to unity. Bobby, I promise I'll I'll try to tie it up to unity. But I had to start here. I could not in good conscience come and tell you to lock arms together and sing hallelujah together. And it would make us united. It's superficial. It's, It's gross. It's false. It's fake. We need Christ to unite us to himself. Romans chapter 5, verse 19. You don't have to turn there. I can read it to you. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Now, hold on a minute. I thought we were all born sinners. Psalm 51, I was born in sin, and sin did my mother conceive me. None have done good. They have all gone astray. All have gone their own way. We're all wicked. Oh, wait a minute. How did Paul just call us righteous then. Because we don't identify with Adam anymore. We have been united to Christ and we identify with him who is righteous. What I'm trying to get you to understand is this very important concept. Everything that Christ did through his, his willingness to suffer, the way he obeyed God, everything Adam felt to do that Christ did and then some has now been imparted to you just as if you lived the perfect life, just as if you were crucified and buried and resurrected. That's what Paul is trying to get at. That's what you have to begin to understand if you really want to have a joy-filled, vital Christian life, that you you let go of all of your own merit. I have nothing. Paul said, "...I count everything I have as dung, that I may simply know and understand the power by which I have been united to Christ." I lay aside all of my work, all of my righteousness, all of my credentials, all of my my seminary I took. Everything I did under the study and and, and effort I put in, I lay it all aside because I have no righteousness of my own, but it is that I have been united to Christ Jesus. Think if you began to read Paul's letters this way. If I was going to write letters... You would look for a signature to know it was from me. I used to know a preacher. And everything he talked about was, my wife will understand this, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. He said that so many times that if he said it once, he said it a thousand times. I knew it was coming every sermon. It was his signature line. Paul has a signature line, and it is what it means to be in Christ. But let's stop and think for a minute. Where did Paul... Get this type of language I want you to think about for a minute his damascus road experience You've got to remember that paul when he was in adam was the the fiercest persecutor of the church Solely and individually he nearly stamped it out himself. He would have stood by as children were ripped away from their parents I want you to consider what would what it would have been like for paul to hold the coats of the people that martyred stephen Paul was there. He said it. He admits to it. I was there. I approved of it I cheered him on. He stood there as blood flowed from Stephen and his very lifeblood went out before him. Paul stood there and knew that. And yet Paul remembers on the Damascus Road his experience with the Lord. When the bright light shines and what does the Lord say to him? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? (laughs) Think about the haunting of Paul after this. Because he realized, I murdered Stephen. When I murdered Stephen, I murdered Christ himself. He said, why are you persecuting me? Paul wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting these followers of this crazy Nazarite who claimed to have rose from the dead. And yet Jesus says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Because Paul began to understand that what I do to his people, I do to him himself. Wow, this God really is one with his people. And that's why when you read Paul's letter and he says, I am the chief of sinners, he means it. He stood by. He remembers the blood of Stephen. He understood what he did to Christ. So after that, after this, after this takes place, the whole of creation begins to scream out to Paul this union. When he sees the temple, he sees this union. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit? That God's temple and His, His Spirit is you? That you are the temple? Whenever he sees the human body... It's a picture of Christ's union with his church. Do you not know that your body in Colossians 1.18 he says, and he is the head of the body, the church. Just as a husband and wife are, are one flesh, or as connected as as near and dear as your body is to your head, that's how near and dear Christ's church is to him. If your body was, if your head was to fall off of your body today, you would be lifeless. You would have no vitality. You would have no ability to move your hands and your feet. You would have nothing. Jesus says that's how close God's people are to him. He saw the very human body as an expression of the union of Christ and the church. I personally believe that marriage was simply given as a picture of this union the Christ. That's the, the wonderful thing. He knew we needed mates. He knew we needed someone to walk with us. But even then, even all the way back to Genesis 1, it's an expression of the life of Christ in his people. It's a foreshadowing of what would take place. Think about, where did Eve come from? Everybody knows. Came out of the side of Adam, right? He puts Adam to sleep, and out of the rib, he makes a woman. Where did the church come from today? What happened when Jesus was on the cross, and a Roman centurion comes along, and he takes his spear, and rather than breaking his legs, what does he do? He takes that spear, and he jabs it in his side, and everybody knows what comes out is blood and water. Where was the church born out of, folks? Folks. Out of the side of Christ. In the same way that Eve was born out of the sight of Adam, so the church was born out of the sight of Christ. A beautiful picture of what was to be. That's the union that I'm talking about that Christ would have with his people. Is there anything more intimate, by the way, than marriage? I swear, Shiloh and I have been together long enough, and when we spend a lot of time together. That There are times when I, if we're watching something and I, I'll think it, if I say it, she'll usually go, oh, I was thinking that too. Even if I don't, sometimes I'll be sitting there and I'll think, I bet if I say this out loud, she'll say, I was just thinking of that. And so I'll test it and I'll do it and she'll go, I was just thinking of that. Why? Because there's an intimacy between us. We have, we have grown closer with one another. That's the intimacy by which Christ wants with his people. He wants us to grow closer to him. There's a Puritan by the name of John Flavel. He says, think about the angels in heaven right now. They are the barons and the nobles of heaven. But still yet, the very angels, it does not compare to the bride of Christ, born out of his very bosom, one with him. (laughs) You understand that we will be higher than angels because we are the bride of Christ? Isn't that wonderful? What a privilege. So in summary... Our union with him is so complete that you can say, I have been crucified. I have been raised. I've been resurrected. In John 15, friends, this is not a trade secret, by the way. This is not next level Christianity. This is Christianity. Some of what I'm saying may be new to you, but it's not a trade secret. It's not next level spirituality. This is simply Christianity in its nutshell. How sad is the state of the church? We've lost this. Jesus gave us the very parable of the vine and the vineyard to try to express this very life in and through us in John chapter 15. Look at what he says in John 15, verse 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. He's trying to say everything that the vine possesses now belongs to who? The branches. And everything that happens to the branches happens to the vine. You can't separate the two. The union with them is so complete. All of life flows from the vine and into the branch. And the branch, apart from him, he says, can produce nothing. All of our trying and all of our producing is just stapling live apples on a dead tree. It must flow from our union with Christ. Do you understand how freely and fully Jesus gives of himself to you? That's another, one of the last points I want you to understand, how freely and fully he has given. He says, everything that the Father has given to me, I have made known to you. Everything, all of the wonderful blessings, all of the wonderful merit, has nothing to do of your own. It has all flowed in and through Christ. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? What is all things? He doesn't mean physical things, although the Father cares for us physically. He he, He provides for our needs, but He's not just talking about things. He's talking about our sanctification, our redemption, our very life, our very essence in Him. Friends, this is what you and I were made for, by the way. You were made for this soul rest. So I want to ask you this question. How much of this wonderful privilege have you afforded in your life? How much time have you spent dwelling upon, meditating on the wonderful life that you have in Christ? Do you ever wonder that you don't grow to be more like Christ? Do you ever wonder that other people can talk about Christ in a way that seems foreign to you? That when they worship, you can tell there's something different about them? What is it? They understand and experience the life of Christ in a more intimate way because they are operating on a new principle, faith. They understand that Christ wants to be as real to them as the person sitting next to you, more real than the person sitting next to you. He wants to come alive inside of you and put his principle of life in you. So, I want to wrap up our time this morning. I know that I've said a lot. I really have. I know this can be a lot to take in. What I want you to understand, though, under, understanding is the gateway to the heart. Until you understand this, you will not grow. You will not grow in intimacy. You will not grow in prayer. You will not grow in anything that you are meant to be. You will never be who you are meant to be until you understand this most basic fundamental doctrine. Once you understand it, we meditate on it until our desire becomes inflamed. And when that desire becomes inflamed to grasp this, you know what then happens? The will, the decision maker, is now moved. Think of your will like a river sweeping along anything in its path until you get what you want. (laughs) That's a good way to describe an unbeliever. I'm going to get what I want by all means necessary. I will use people. I will use things. My will will be done, and it will be done when I want it to be done. But when you become a Christian, you've been given a new will, a new principle, and you want the life of God to be expressed in and through you and through your family. And when you understand this, when I say the will will be changed, the course of the river has now been redirected, and all of your decisions will now flow in and out of through this. If everyone's will in here was changed and redirected to want to experience the life of Christ in them more freely... We would not beg people to come to prayer meeting. (laughs) We would not beg people to sing worship songs together. We would not beg people to read their word together. Their own decision makers, their very will, would take on the form and will of Christ Jesus and begin to do those things on their own. And we would express real unity amongst one another. We need a new principle of life to govern and move us. So what do we do? (laughs) If you're a believer in here, you grasp this and you say, amen, Lord. This is what you have done. Maybe I didn't have words for it. Maybe I didn't even know how to express it in the same way. But I thank you that you have done for this. And you bow your souls in worship. <laughs> you bow and you meditate it on until your soul does bow and worship. You fix your eyes on Christ and you say with Paul, Philippians 3, verse 12, I am apprehended of Christ. Paul was so <laughs> apprehended of Christ. His whole very life, everything he had was in Christ and of Christ. Second thing we must do. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? That was scripture I just quoted. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. We examine ourselves. If Paul said that the believers in Corinth needed to do it I think that the believers right here at Cornerstone need to do the very same thing examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith test yourself or do you not realize this about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you that's what he says that's the test test yourself is Jesus Christ in you Thomas Boston one of my favorite Puritans said, you may be a Christian by profession, but not implantation. You may profess to be a Christian, but if you've not been imparted into him, a part of the vine, then you are simply not his. So what do we do? We come trembling but trusting. We take him at his word that he is gentle and lowly, that he is meek, that he will accept us in our sinful, sinful ways. Even those of us that do know Christ. But especially those that don't. His heart is for you. He is the friend of sinners for a reason. Yes, he loves his children and we can come to him. We can spend our time with him. But nothing inflames the heart of Christ more than when a poor sinner cries out and says, Lord, I don't have this. What he's talking about this morning, I don't have any part of that in me. But I want it. We come trembling but trusting. And the minute... That happens. He comes and he makes his home in you. John 17 are his last three words. I in them. That's what he wants for us. We abandon all hope and put our faith in Jesus. You see, my fear, what I hear out of most Christian songs is that Jesus is a concept. He's this concept that we sing about that does things for us, that he is for us that he does things about us. But Jesus is more than a concept. The gospel is more than a concept. The gospel is a person. Put your faith in the gospel means to put your faith in Jesus. Let me define faith for you really quickly. Really simply, dependent trust in a person. That's faith. Not in a concept, in a person. That's what faith simply means. So, believer, ask yourself this morning, if you can say, Song of Solomon, verse 6, verse 3 is mine. I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. That's Christianity in a nutshell. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this wonderful doctrine, this wonderful life, Lord, that you've given us to move out of the realm of the intellectual and into the realm of faith. Help us to behold such wonderful things, Lord, things too wonderful for our eyes. Lord, I understand and know that there's some in this room, Lord, that that this is new to them, Lord, that you would give them eyes to see, that you would give them the gift of faith to see and behold all that Christ has done for them, all that Christ has done in them. Help us to see that out of Christ all these spiritual blessings flow. Lord, bow our souls in worship this morning. Father, I pray that we would join in the heavenly course and praising the Son, for all the wonderful things that he has done, that he is doing, that he continues to do. Let us abandon all hope in ourselves this morning and put all of our hope in Jesus, Lord. All of our faith and all of our trust is yours. We know that we can trust you with all that we have. For you are meek, you are gentle, and you are lowly in heart. You are for the sinner. It's in your son's name that I pray.